Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. And we're in Joshua 2 tonight. So when we were off at the state park, it was kind of research because the river there is about 100 meters wide and it's about 12 feet deep. And it is spring, and the spring rains have come in. So we're going to cross the Jordan today as we go through the next two chapters. And we went up to a river that was about the same size as the Jordan, only the Jordan's in a little flatter area, so when it gets to be the spring rains, it'll overflow the banks, which we'll see all these details come out in the chapters tonight. But as we're looking at that river when we're at Jay Cook State Park, you think of like what it would take to cross it. And, and you know, being an old man with a young man's heart, I think I could probably cross that. Like, it would be a little dangerous, but it, like it's doable if it were warm. We could figure this out. And so the Jordan River is one of those kind of rivers. But could you cross two million people over that river? And the answer is clearly, heck no. You'd have people dying. It would be a disaster. You'd have little children that couldn't make that swim. Um, so it was fun to be able to be at that river this weekend and just think through and kind of meditate on it. And by the way, it's, it's got to be in our top three most beautiful state parks. So if anybody hasn't been there, highly recommend it. It's up there with better than some of the North Shore parks. Really just gorgeous. Um, so we have this situation last chapter where we had this narrative of um, the context of the word of God being the people's strength from, ch from chapter one. This chapter, we're going to get into Rahab and hiding of the spies, which is a story that I hope we're all fairly familiar with. Um, Jericho is the city of Palm. It sits at a crossroad between two major trade routes. If you go north from Jericho, you get into a very rocky territory, and the river itself cuts through rock if you get north of Jericho about 20 miles. That's going to be important in a little bit. If you go all around Jericho, it's this big open plain fed with waters from the Jericho. So being the city of Palms is kind of appropriate. On the other side of the river is another big open plain where the Israelites are camping. All of this big open plain area is as visible as when you're on the South Dakota plains looking. You can see miles and miles and miles. It's fairly flat. So know that in context as to how we get here. Um, Jericho is a city. The other kind of little piece that you found, I found in the research this week that I didn't include last week, it is arguably the oldest major city in the world that's, been, that's still standing and has people living in it. So there is still a Jericho. It's still there. There is Tel Jericho, where they're doing archaeological ruins. So this spot that we're hitting, and I said when we hit the histories, we're going to hit stuff that's all in the archaeology. I love this because you can watch videos of it. You can see people walking around this area. They're digging everything up. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing. It was an Iron Age trade city. It had a double set of walls, which you don't get on the flannel board at Sunday school. But it actually had two walls. That's why it was well known. One wall, the outer wall, had earthen embankments on the inside of it that backed it up. Because at this time in history, the Assyrians had invented the battering ram. And the only defense against a good battering ram is more dirt. 
So you didn't just have the stone wall, you filled in behind the stone wall with dirt. So you could hit that thing as much as you want with a battering ram, and you're really never going to do any damage to it. Making this one of the most defensible cities of the world at this time, because they were one of the first people to develop this technology. So we know all that kind of thing from the archaeology. There are 23 layers in the archaeological dig of Jericho going all the way back to this first layer, which they feel like was the original destruction of the city. So after that, it has been inhabited over and over and over again, and all of that can be dug up, and you can see it through the layers of Jericho. It's one of the spots I really want to go if we go back to Israel. So the archaeology here is that during this particular era, there's only one segment of wall that was left standing. Putting Rahab up there with one of the most significant people in history, and we're going to find out more about her. Verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove. In the Hebrew, that's Shittim. And I looked it up and listened to the pronunciation. It is Shittim. It's not Shittim or anything like that. It's Shittim. So the middle schooler in me really loves that. So Joshua, son, son of men, sent two men out from Shittim to secretly spy, spy secretly, saying, go ahead, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and they lodged there. <laughs> we'll come back to that. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. All right. First, we remember back in the day when they sent spies into the land, and they did it with great public display. There were two from each tribe. You remember this? They went into the land. They came back. The only two that said, we're good to go. Let's go conquer the land. We're Caleb and Joshua, the only two surviving people today. All the rest of the nation dies in the wilderness because they believed the other spies. And so when Joshua then sends spies in, don't you ask the question, isn't this like questionable? But there's a couple things to pull. Like, is this a lack of faith on Joshua's part that he's doing this? And I would argue that doesn't fit the context of the chapter, and it really doesn't fit a few little details. Notice this. They are going to spy secretly. There's two Hebrew words there, spy secretly. It sounds like a redundancy, doesn't it? But the idea, because all spies are secret, that's the nature of spydom in any spy movie. But to spy secretly is to spy without telling the whole country. They didn't make a big scene out of this. These two spies go off and they spy secretly to get information back to Joshua. So as opposed to a being a question of whether or not we should go into the land, this is a question of how do we go into the land and what's the best approach to do this because they had no idea what God was about to do. All they knew is they were supposed to move forward and it was time to move. So, And it was told the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. The second detail is they had lookouts on the walls and they could see people crossing this river, right? So two strong men could get in the water and cross this river. It's not, again, you'd have to have two people like the Michael, Michael and Michael to do it, but they could do it. It's a doable thing for a strong person to get across this river, right? So the fact that they could see two people crossing the river and coming up towards Jericho and then go and tell the king means that this kind of happened in, a way, in such a way that the visibility from Jericho to the river is clear. That's going to be super important later on. Um, but they knew this. They could see these people coming in. The preparation here then goes together with the faithfulness. As believers, when God tells us to do something, 
preparation for doing it isn't bad. It, it doesn't mean go out and be stupid. It means make preparations and do it smart. So we that see that piece of uh, Joshua's leadership here. The two people instead of 12, they're going to represent Israel. Notice that it just says two men. It doesn't name them because it's not important who the two men are. They represent Israel. They're doing work for Joshua. They're doing it in the name of God. I really like that. I just like that idea of nameless service. People that serve quietly and you don't even know they're doing it. But the purpose here is to, to advance. It's not like Numbers 13 where the purpose was to decide if they could take them or not. They know they can take them. God's with them. So just kind of a point there. Shatim, Acacia Grove, are, and I just thought that when I looked up like what kind of tree is this, it's a black tree with thorns all over it. And take that for what it is. I just thought it was really interesting that the sun and ends, and this is the name of the place they're staying, and they're going from Acacia Grove into this new promised land. They're getting out of the thorns, and they're starting to actually move and move forward. A lot of times believers don't get out of the thorns. They get saved. They're constantly struggling with sin for 10, 20 years. Some of them even die in the wilderness. When we get to Joshua, we're not seeing that model of Christianity. We're seeing a model of people that are going to move forward. And the question is, how do they do it? Because at least for me, I want to move forward too. I want to do what God has for me and to do it really well. So um, we'll get moving there. 2018, there were archaeologists, J.P. Morrow and Dr. David Ben Shlomo, uh, and they, um, they tried to retrace the footsteps of ancient Israelites as they fled Egypt. Because you can kind of do this. You can find these areas the Bible said exist, and you can go dig there. This is the invention of archaeology, by the way, is that you go try to find things that ancient books talk about, and you go there. So if the ancient books are true, the archaeology bears fruit. If the ancient books are wrong, the archaeology isn't even worth publishing. So the Bible invents archaeology or feeds it. It's not the other way around because I'm going to read a lot of archaeology over the coming months. But I love this passage. This is from this article by J.P. Morrow. New analysis of ruins near the Jordan River could be proof of a nomadic Israelite society crossing the land from the outside. Sites like Kerbet El Mastara and other similar ones in the Jordan Valley seem, at least from the sur first survey of material, to have appeared during the Iron Age, since this is not a densely populated in any period in history, it might indicate a new phenomena, like there were actually nomads creating mini settlements or a new population to the east of the Jordan. Almost like they camped there. And they had little stone herding things for sheep and other animals that they're digging up there right now. Uh, so it'll be interesting because this was 2018. It usually takes a few years for a new article to come out on a tell or on a site. Um, but that should be coming too. So there's actually archaeological evidence of a camp on the east side and a city on the west side establishing through archaeology, not giving validity to the Bible, but confirming what the Bible already says. It's kind of fun. So they're going to spy secretly. To the word spy here means to move your feet or to go about and tread in a silent way. Uh, so it, again, for us, spies can take on an image from the movies. But these are just people that are just going to move into the land and walk in there. So only Joshua thinks to send them this way. And remember, we were told in the last chapter that wherever they trod their feet, they're claiming it. So it's kind of like, and this is maybe a third confirmation that this isn't faithlessness. Joshua is sending them out to claim the land before he brings in the nation. Because wherever they trod their feet, they're going to do it. So the word spy here means to move the feet or to go about and tread. It's a very similar word to what was there before. Um, 
So they're going to tra travel lightly or be shotting about with sandals silently. They were going to go there. Um, interestingly, if you go to Mark 6, when Jesus sends the disciples out two by two, uh, he makes a special note of what they're supposed to wear. Do you remember that? He says they're supposed to wear sandals and travel lightly. And he uses the same words only in the Greek that imply moving about silently or quietly. So they're supposed to just go into the land two by two. Don't bring anything with you. Just don't don't even bring, you know, any more than, you know, the sandals on your feet is the thing that gets pointed out. And interestingly enough, we have a, a mirror of that in the Old Testament, too. And when Jesus sends them out two by two, they actually are going out in order to bring people to salvation or to bring them there. So then they run into a harlot. <laughs> There's tons of just Hebrew stuff in here. Like we all know what a harlot is, correct? In the Hebrew, the original word harlot simply meant highly fed, wanton, someone who eats or partakes of sexual activity more than they should, right? It's, so she's not an innkeeper. And if you read stuff on Joshua, again, some of the critiques of Joshua, they're just crazy. She's not an innkeeper. Innkeepers are not wanton people that partake of more sex than they should. That's not necessarily, and Hebrews had words for innkeepers. So she's not an innkeeper. The only reason you say that is if, you're try if you just can't reconcile the idea that the holy nation of Israel happens to go into a town and the first place they go to is a, a harlot, right? And you're like, oh, how can God possibly use this a sinner to do anything good? And so you try to reconcile it or you try to change what the Bible actually says but we don't do that here. We're just going to know what it says, and then you can deal with it because you're big boys and girls. Um, so this is actually a, a prostitute. Uh, she is, let's get the full definition of her identity. She's a Gentile woman. She's a goyim. She is a woman, and she is a harlot. This puts her in the ancient world at the very lowest of all social strata. She's not only not a Jewish person, which puts her low in that sense, she's also a woman, which puts her beneath the men in a patriarchal society. And she's a harlot, which puts her beneath all of the women in that society that don't want to have anything to do with her. Can we think of anyone else in the Bible that fits that description? A woman who is not Hebrew, who is a woman, and who has had many, many men more than she should. So we've, it's not hard. We've got two different women that we can think of. It's like God uses these people that are the lowest in society in order to bless the entire planet. And so don't lose sight of that as we get to Rahab. So both Yeshua's in the Bible actually start their ministry with a woman who is wanton in her partaking of men, and they, and they do it quietly and silently. Jesus meets the woman at the well, and at the very same time, point in Joshua's beginning ministry sends these two men out and they just happen to run in to the only person in Jericho that actually wants to serve the living God. Kind of cool, right? So the, the one miracle is they end up at her house versus all these people in Jericho that want to kill them. Like that, you got to think, if you walk into a city, what are the odds that you run into that house or find that place? How did she even know they were coming into the city? She's a harlot. She's keeping tabs on who the travelers are. Harlots love to live in shipping docks and trade markets because you find people new to the city and you host them. It's what you do. So she's there. She identifies them. They bring them back to the house. There is no mention of sexual interrelations between the two spies and Rahab. There is only the mention of Rahab's heart and where she's at, which is beautiful. 
Uh, it's an important point in John 14 or in John 4:18. If you want to do a Bible study and go reread that Samaritan story, it's a really important point that she had five husbands. It's part of the interaction they have. It's like God wanted us to know that she was not well received by other women in her society. In order to, I think, to show the mirroring between Yeshua's ministry and Jesus's ministry, that there's lessons to be learned there. So they lodge there. They stay under the radar. There's no report of indiscretion, but the king finds out that these two people are in the city because at some point they got to go from the front gate to her house, and everybody knows who's going in and out of Rahab's house. Oddly enough, these people that are considered the lowest in the society seem to get so much attention from that same society. Um, verse 3, so Jericho, so the king of Jericho, not even mentioned by name, I like that, sent Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and she hid them. So she said, yeah, the men came to me, but I don't know where they came from. There's no obligation for a host. So in the ancient world, there is an obligation for a host to take care of their guests. There is no obligation for that host to defy their king in order to take care of the guests. That's not part of the ancient world. So the argument that she's doing this because she has to uh-uh, she's doing this because she wants to save their lives. Why would she want to lie for them? Why would she want to lie for two total strangers? There has to be something going on in her heart before she ever got there. Why would a pagan harlot risk her life for these two men? And that's something we should think about a lot. So God then is helping them find the one person in, the, in probably all the land that wants to risk her life for them because she has seen and heard of what God has done and she wants to be part of that. Because when somebody's broken in their heart, the idea of being whole again and being with God's people is a beautiful thought and a beautiful thing to come back to. So her house is in the perfect location. She has a particular kind of roof that we should notice. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. She's lying through her teeth. But she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid out in order on the roof. And then the men pursued them by the Jordan and to the fjords. As soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the soldiers leave the city and they have a place to sleep for the night because the gate's shut. And these guys are chasing them all over the countryside and she sends them on what's called a wild goose chase. There's nobody out there to chase. She just sends them to chase it. The flax is a really an, an interesting point. These roofs are flat. So what they would do is take flax from the field and they would dry it out on their roofs. And when it says the flax that was in order, which she had laid in order is a prepositional phrase that's thrown in there because we're supposed to notice it. Anyone reading this in this generation would know that when stacks of flax are on the roof, they're not like a thatched roof. They're being laid out on the roof because they're used to make linen. So this is a harlot who's making linen in her spare time. It's almost like she's doing everything she can to survive and make a living. Right? So making linen is not an easy thing. It's a highly skilled task, highly valued, highly precious, and it really was invented in Egypt. So there's a good possibility that Rahab may have even been at least familiar with Egyptian practices before she came up to Jericho. And it's something that I'm hoping archaeologists really dig into and try to figure out. Um, but if she's laid them out in order on her roof, then she's done that. They're also big enough piles for men to hide in which would give me allergies through the roof. Like, I wouldn't hide. You just hear a sneezing pile of flax. Um, but they are able to hide here, and they're able to do it. So 
Now we have two sins from Rahab, according to Leviticus. She is A, a prostitute, that's a sin, and she's a liar, and we're not supposed to lie. So these are two of the big Ten Commandments she's broken right off the bat. So this gets into all sorts of theological questions. Maybe sometimes lying is okay. Lying to save a life is maybe okay. And you can start to justify or get through all that. I love how God just lets us wrestle with that. There's no theological commentary on this passage. And we're going to find this a lot in the histories. The Bible doesn't excuse sin in the histories. It only reports that it happened. And this is one way that some commentators look at this and see it as a validity point of a lot of the histories. If, as a people, you're going to report things accurately and accuracy is the highest value, then you have to report things that are really embarrassing to your people because accuracy is more important than appearance. And that's one of the things when they say these details like the flax, that she lied, that she did all this, is that the entire movement of Israel is moving forward based on these sins that are occurring. And is God using the sins or would God have found another way to do things if he didn't do it this way? So these are really challenging things that any new believer has to wrestle with. Is this a sin? Is this not a sin? How do I do this? What does God want me to do? And God tells you to go back to the word. And he doesn't excuse sin, and he didn't excuse sin with the Samaritan woman either. Or when the woman was, uh, the prostitute with, was brought to Jesus, and they were wanting to stone him, and he just says, nobody's left to stone you, go and sin no more. It's not that he condoned the sin, it's that he's saying, stop sinning and start living holy. So Rahab's got this opportunity to save these men, and she does it, even in her sinful state, and this habit of lying that she has, she does it. Exegesis is the Bible explaining itself. Like, you know these words, exegesis? Exegesis is to let the Bible sell itself and to explain itself. And what it explains, it explains. What it doesn't, is it doesn't. Then there's eisegesis, which is the other word, which is when we take our own ideas about who a harlot is and if people should lie or not lie, and we translate those onto people in the Bible. So one idea is that God can't love a sinner. That any kind of sin makes it so God can't love people. And this is a horrible idea, but there are Christians that have it. If you have sin, suddenly God can't work in your life and do things in your life. But the reality is God is using Rahab. And the Bible doesn't explain that. The only way we would say that that's impossible is if we're bringing eisegesis to this passage. The exegesis of this passage is God is absolutely uni using a sinful woman and her sin, but he's using it for the good of God. The Bible says elsewhere that God can turn all things to his good and to his glory. He can even take somebody who's a sinner and do that. Now, Rahab is going to act by faith. And when we get to Hebrews, she's actually one of the heroes of faith. What redeems and saves Rahab in God's eyes isn't that she had dealt with and gotten rid of sin in her life. It's that she started with faith and she ended with faith in the face of danger and everything else. She just trusts that this God of the Hebrews is her God too. That's it. And I just think that's so amazing. So drawing meaning from the text is that God can love a stranger. God can use a stranger. God does allow people to be repentant, even when they're sinners. Think of the implications of that. If you don't bring your own judgment to her lying and her prostitution, you can just look at a woman who's being used by God to save or to help Israel do what they're going to do. Because she's going to give them everything they need in the next few verses. Because they are spies. Remember, they're trying to spy out the land. The only person they talk to is Rahab. And somehow or another, she says or does something that gives them 100% confidence to go back to Joshua and say, let's take them. 
So they happen to also, not only do they run into the one house where they're not going to get killed and turned over to the king, they happen to also go to the one house where she knows everything they need to know and what comes out of her mouth is totally 100% convincing to them as spies. Kind of a good lucky land. So you could say they're lucky, or you could say God's got his hand on all of this, and it's all part of his plan. Verse 8, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in any one because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The first proclamation of faith after Joshua takes leadership is a foreign, strange, harlot woman proclaiming the glory of God in the word of God. And God records this as our word of God so that we can learn from it and grow from it. Here we get the reason she risks her life. This is key. Everyone knew that God was with Israel. That's a big piece of information for these, these folks because if God's going to wait to save the, the hundredth out of the night, the, the, he goes to save the lost sheep and leaves the 99 because no one should perish if they don't have to, it's really important information that every single person in Jericho has heard of the God of the Israelites. Every one of them has. Second, uh, she says here that we know in verse 9, verse 10 says, for we have heard... Um, their hearts had melted. This is how territory in the kingdom actually gets taken, is that people's hearts melt. It's not a physical combat that they're looking at here. And they've, we've seen all their preparations have had nothing to do with physical combat or getting their spears sharpened. But when they come in and find out that the hearts have been melted, that they've heard it, that they believe it, Rahab's faith is, is pretty amazing here, but it's also pretty reasonable. Because if this happened, if the, is, the Egypt's really got destroyed because of these people... And then very close by, they got to see Og and Sihon get destroyed too. It's not like an unreasonable faith to think that Jericho is about to get swamped. And two million people is nothing too shabby to look at when you see them across the plain. So this is all they needed to know. Three different points. Number one, she uses the name Jehovah. Did you catch that? Verse 8, verse 10, verse 11. That capital L-O-R-D means she's using Yahweh. She's using Jehovah the name of God, she knows it, she's heard of it. So the fact that she's even using the name, even the lowest stationed person in Jericho knows the name of God, that's point number one. Point number two, that fear had spread everywhere and that they had fallen and they were given over to defeat. The people in Jericho knew they were about to get beat. That's big information. Point number three, they were faint-hearted in verse nine and their hearts had melted away in verse 11. Uh, they were likely... A lot of them had left town because those two words are virtually the same word. It means that they had spread. So when it says that their hearts, that the land, the, the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you, it says they have spread or dissolved because of you. In other words, there weren't a lot of people left. They, they took off because there's two kinds of faith in God. There's the faith in God that makes you run towards God, and there's the faith in God that makes you run away from God. And these people had dissolved. 
They were, it was, and we've translated that faint-hearted, but it means to dissolve or to melt into things. So they were gone. So in other words, Jericho's not very well defended. There aren't a lot of people in this city, but it doesn't take a lot of people to defend a walled city. But most of the people had taken off or left. This stands in the face of people that say that this is a, a, a kind of a xenophobic, Israel slaughtering people kind of narrative. It's just not. We have evidence here that, at least in the narrative itself, that the people had left. They had taken off. They were. They knew they were going to get beat, so they rolled out of there. And all that's left are a few, very few people. So their faint heart had become a view. Um, the wording on this, all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. If you flip back to Exodus 15, you're going to see something really cool about this line that she uses. And this is a big point. Remember, all the people of Israel have been reading these five books of Moses, and they just had the law read to them. Remember that? Right? And Moses just reminded them of this. This would be fresh within their head, like within the same week. And I think this is how God talks to people. It's pretty cool. Everybody in Exodus 15? Verses 14 and 15 we see that Rahab is quoting the prophecy that the Israelites were giving. And I wish that they put that right in the commentary. Please look back at Exodus 15. But this is one of those things that you only get kind of from really, really bright people that research and remember in the Bible, because I would have never come up with this one. From Moses' very first song, this is exactly what God promised would happen from the Canaanites, is that they would be faint-hearted or they would melt. The Hebrew word is mug. I like that too. It means to melt away, to dissolve, or to dissipate. The spies then miraculously find the one woman that's favorable to God, and she hasn't run, the one woman who will hide them and risk her life for them, the one woman who just so happens to quote the prophecy in Moses' song, which he taught them all to sing, so they all know the lyrics to the song. So these two guys go walking in, and they hear the lyrics from the song that Moses taught them. Stunning stuff. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy when she says it. So this is part of what puts her on the list of Hebrew, the, the Hebrews 11 heroes, is that her faith actually got words to come out of her mouth that there's no way she would have known those words. No way. And so she says them. You ever have that happen to you? Like you're reading in the Word that morning and you go out into the world and somebody says something that's exactly what you heard in the Word that morning. You're like, must be like the Lord's trying to get something through my thick head. Right? So these two spies are like, they go in here and it's like, man, it must be like God's trying to really show us that he's with us and that we're good because we got this harlot Gentile woman speaking Moses' song back at us. Okay, time to go back to Joshua. We got what we need here. So in verse 10 it says, utterly destroyed which is haram, that word in the Hebrew implies a spiritual destruction. It's what they do to temples and idols, is that they use haram to those idols and things. It's a spiritual curse that is put on something. So when Balaam was beat and spiritually overpowered, it used the same word, haram. So it is a spiritual conquering of the city. It's already happened. So this is super similar to the Samaritan at Jacob's well. Uh, that's back in John 4:19. You can see that. She says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She sees and understands and recognizes what God's doing. She knows the Messiah is coming, John 4:25. Jesus says, I am he, and tells everyone, and then she goes and tells everyone to come and see in John 4:29. The whole city then turns towards God and believes as they invite Jesus in and welcomes him into the city. It's an exact parallel or opposite of what happens here. 
we got one woman who recognizes God, speaks his name, speaks his words, and the whole city is about to get spiritually destroyed by God. When Jesus comes, the whole city is spiritually saved by God. Kind of an opposite outcome. So it's a mirror of what happens here. The sinful Jerichoans, I didn't know if that was a word or not, but I threw it in there, um, have no courage because of God. John 4.39 reports that, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me everything I ever did. So where Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, the opposite parallel here is this woman speaks the words of God back to the Israelites to give them strength and courage. Where these people gain courage, these people lose courage. Exact opposite in both counts. It's kind of amazing. And then in John 4:42, just finishing out that story, then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. It's not what Rahab says that is the end result of her heroism here. It's about what she's about to do, too. So these people kind of um, are destroyed, not only because of what Rahab says to these two spies, but because she's going to give them uh, this, this information and help them get away to get it back to Joshua. Kind of cool stuff. So God's already been at work in both of their lives. They only need to meet the children of God, and then they both declare faith. The city is the end result of both interactions is what happens to the city. And in both narratives, the hearts melt or the word for melting or turning gets used. Uh, one for fear of God, one for love of God. I just think this is great. John 4.37, the whole point of that story with the Samaritan woman, because there was a lesson there that Jesus was trying to teach. He turns to his disciples and he starts to show them what their real role here is. And their real role is to not do combat with the Samaritans, which is what they grew up learning how to do. The real role is to fight a spiritual battle. And he says, for this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. It's right in the middle of the Samaritan story. So you've got historical story with the Samaritan woman, then this lesson from Jesus, and then the end result with the city happens. And right in the middle of that is this lesson that Jesus teaches that says one sows and another reaps. So you're going to be that way too. Some of you are going to plant seeds. Other people are going to say, come and see. Other people are going to walk people through a prayer of salvation. And the whole kingdom works together and people understand and come closer to Christ. It's a beautiful thought. The Lord, your, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath, says Rahab. Notice how simple the declaration of faith is. It's so easy. And she hasn't even been taught how to pray She's got no training. She never went to Jewish school, nothing like that. It's a simple human acknowledgement of who God is. That's the declaration of faith. She acknowledges God's role and his authority, and it's totally effective. Biblically speaking, she's recorded as one of the people God loves. And the end result of Rahab's story, by the way, I'm going to blow the ending on this. She actually gets to be in the lineage of Jesus. So you look at the Gospels and the lineages and the genealogies there, she's one of five women that's named in this genealogy in an era where women weren't named in genealogies. But her faith is part of what makes her important. So God, at this point in history, is already setting up a New Testament narrative. Like, that's our God. He's that big, and he's weaving this story through all of history. It's pretty amazing. Then she asks for salvation. She says, I beg you, and she wants to be with God. Verse 12. Now, therefore, I beg you, Swear to me by the Lord, because it doesn't matter who they are. They're not even named. They're just dudes. doesn't matter. By the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. So we get a little glimpse of Rahab with the father's house thing, too. 
is she this really horrible human being or is she trying to help her family get by? And in this horribly sinful, corrupt Canaanite city, the only thing she can do is prostitute herself to try to help her family's household and put her faith in the Lord. Because you see the motive of this woman right here and what she's trying to do. Give me a true token. Verse 13, it says, And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. You see how she perceives herself as part of a group of people? It is very rare to find a prostitute that, that's connected to their family. Usually Satan will disconnect a young woman so that she can be brought into prostitution. But not in this case at all. She's totally connected to her family, which speaks to the horrible corruption of this city and what they did to people in this city. Anyways, so the men answer, our lives for yours. Easy trade. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord gives us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Truth and love. I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, when we risk our lives to serve God, his assurance is reasonable to ask for. God, I'm going to give my life from yours. Can you give me some assurance? You ever seen new believers do that? I've actually seen new believers do that, and then veteran believers say, oh, don't test the Lord your God. Are you nuts? That's exactly what we should be doing, especially for new believers. Lord, show me something that I didn't just make like a, a decision because I was brainwashed or convinced. Like, become intimate in my life, Lord. Show me something that I can hold near and dear, that I can know that you're with me, God. And I don't think that's unreasonable at all because we see it in the Bible, exegesis. It's right there. Our lives for yours, the word life there is the Hebrew word for soul. So it's not just a physical life, it's a spiritual life. This becomes a simple, very basic covenant. It's a vow that they just made. And remember in Leviticus, you're not supposed to make vows lightly. If you make a vow, you keep it or God's against you, which is why they're saying our lives for yours. Because if this vow gets broken, they know that the God of the universe will, will reconcile that with them. So this is a huge vow that they just made with her. They have to be pretty grateful that she just saved their life. Verse 15, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on a city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. And then she said to them, Get to the mountain, let the pursuers meet you, hide there three days. And she said to them, <clears throat> Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, hide there three days. Oh, see, I just read that twice. Until the pursuers have returned, afterwards you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless in this oath of yours, which you've made for us to swear. Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, and your brothers, all of your father's household into your home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood is on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. And then she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. I like how she does it right away. She doesn't wait for a couple nights. She like puts that cord out there right now. Lots of commentary on this passage, tons of commentary. I'm not going to go through it all, but if you want to dig through some of these things, what does the scarlet cord mean? seems to be the central question in the commentary. What does it represent? What is it there for? So you can put what you want on that. It is scarlet. This is an extremely valuable dye. We know that from when we were doing the temple construction. Um, that dye comes from the little bugs that get pregnant, and you have to kill them when they're pregnant, and then they release a, a red dye that you can use on cloth and fabric. 
making it incredibly expensive to gather enough of that to do it. So she's got this quarter rope that would have been a very expensive piece of decoration in her home that she's hanging out a window, right? So big picture, let's look at this too, given that Joshua and Jesus have the same name. Yeshua sends out two nameless men. They both find a sinner. She asks to be saved and they tell her how to be saved. Is This is the basic of, of like, for believers that want to get out of the thorns and start going into their life, the, the direction is not to like get things right with yourself. You become a believer, you gave up your life for God, you're a nameless thug, but you have a job to do. You go out and tell people about Jesus, and when they ask to be saved, you show them how to do it. And that simple formula is all the way back here in Joshua too. And I just, for me at least, that was one of my big takeaways after going through all those commentaries. It is totally uh, clear that there is something with this scarlet cord that matters in various ways to different people. It, and so the, the Cocos illicis is the name of that bug, if you really want to research bugs and see some gross pictures online. Um, and one of the big popular things is that red represents the blood of Christ, that that's the thing that saves her. I'm, I don't think the Bible necessarily says that, so it's hard for me to jump to that, but it's a nice image. Uh, it is a signal. Um, and it is a signal that gets used, and it is akin to the signal that gets used at the Passover. So that blood of, of the lamb that's put over the doorpost at the Passover, the thing that's going to save Rahab is this cord hanging out the window, again, using the color red. Do with that what you want. I'm just sharing it with you. But she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Katie, I think that's a great T-shirt line. She bound the scarlet cord in the window. I don't know why, but it makes you ask questions. It's a, it's a nice image or at least something good for novel writing, to use that image. Anyways, just a thought for my daughter. I like that she does it in private after they leave. So I think that's pretty cool too. Sometimes when we minister to people and show them the way to Christ, we're not always there for that moment when they do that action of faith and when they take that step. Some sow, others reap. And we're going to see, I think that's just a neat image that they leave and then she does this thing of th this action of faith. Uh, her words of faith then just became a public display of faith. Another nice image of what goes on there. James 2.24 says, See then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. We live in an era in church history where we have lessened the importance of works and raised the importance of words. And it's not entirely biblical. Biblical, there's some sort of balance there. You're not saved by your works. But when you're saved, you do some things. And there is this balance there. There's this kind of thing. It's not works alone. It's not faith alone. According to James, it's some sort of balance that comes between them. If you're a person of faith and faith only, you can live 40 years in the wilderness and never do anything for the kingdom. It's a horrible, miserable way to die because you don't get the, the, the delight of sin without a conscience. Now you get sin with a conscience. And then you die and you never get the blessings of God's, what God can do in your life because you've never done anything with God. You've never conducted yourself in a way where you've hung the cord out the window. And it's a really interesting kind of thing. The next verse in James says, likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she'd received the messengers and sent them out another way? So I snuck that one in. James was making commentary on this passage. It's what Rahab did that saved her life. It's not the words that she said. It's that she took action on those words. That really convicts me, because what if I get to heaven, and I'm like, hey, Lord, how are you? And he says, Sean, I never knew you. 
but Lord, I did miracles in your name. I taught Bible study every Sunday night. I didn't beat my children, even when I felt like it sometimes, but I didn't do that. No, I'm kidding. I've never felt that way. But you think, man, Lord, I tried to do everything I could. And then the Lord says, but I never knew you. There's no relationship there. You didn't follow me. You just did your own thing all the time. What a horrible way to end your life. So James is commenting on the fact that Rahab is a great example of somebody justified by her works, not because she was an Israelite or a Hebrew or did everything right down at the temple or served biscuits at church. None of that saved her. What saved her was this simple act of faith that she knew who God was, she proclaimed faith in him, and she put the life of her and her family in the hands of the people of Israel. It's pretty simple. So Yeshua is going to be her savior, just like Yeshua is our savior. She puts her hope in God's salvation that's to come when the destruction is on its way. And the destruction is on its way. Verse 22. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but they didn't find them. This Verse 22 is a sneaky little miracle. How do you not find these people on a big flat plain? They had to either move like ninjas under the cover of darkness, or they dressed up like a bush and moved very slowly. So you think, how did they get from the mountains, which were kind of on the others, they're the wrong direction. That's why she sent them that way. Because they were looking towards the Jordan River and they found nothing. And then they had to get past Jericho and then back down to the Jordan River. So how they got there, the Bible gives us no commentary. It's one of those quiet miracles. Just kind of happens. And they're like, we got back and nobody found us. Um, so they were good spies, apparently, or very, very small men. Verse 23, so the two men returned, again unnamed, descended from the mountain and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has delivered us into the land into our hands, for indeed, look at what they say here, all the inhabitants of the land and of the country are faint-hearted because of us. They quote the song of Moses. It's all they needed to hear from Rahab. And then they bring it here, and it's all Joshua needs to hear. Oh, my goodness. You mean she said that? That happened? So they're telling him all this stuff. Yeah, we came to the house, and she was, she wanted to be saved, and we did this thing with the cord, and she got us out of there, and we got back safely, and all the inhabitants of the land and country are faint-hearted because of us. Like, what did we ever do? God did everything, but they're scared of us. They repeat verse 9 because it's all Joshua needed to hear, is God's moving. And when they see that God's moving, they're ready to move too. It's really cool stuff. This is faith. This is not sight. There's nothing that they saw in Jericho but big walls and kings and people ready to kill them. But what they saw was that God was moving and God was working. And if God's with us, we win. It's a really, remember, biblical math. You plus God wins. So the story then is not about military preparations. There's n we don't even know what they're wearing or what weapons they're using. It's all about what's going on in the hearts and minds of the Israelites and the Jerichoites. So they're going to meditate on God's word in chapter 1. They're going to go out. Uh, this is another little image here too. They're going to go out just to redeem and save that one person in Jericho that needs saving. Isn't that like God? Before he floods the world, he goes out and saves Noah's family. And before he goes in to destroy Jericho, he saves the one woman and her whole family that are ready to put their faith in God. 
So what's more important than the battle, the conquest of the land, this entire biblical narrative, what's more important than all of that is this lady Rahab. That's our God. And we can put our faith in that God and the love of that God because he'll do everything. He'll move mountains to save one person. And those of you that think the end is nigh, I'm one of them, that we're getting close to the end right now because of what the Bible says, don't be scared. Don't worry. Put your faith in the same God that saved Rahab before he did anything destructive to that city. He redeemed and he saved her. That's our Jesus. That's what Yeshua does. Matthew 8, 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, doesn't he leave the 99 to go seek the one that's straying? And if he should find it, truthfully, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that didn't go astray. God just left two million Israelites waiting at the edge of a river so he could save one woman and her family. <sighs> Truly the Lord has delivered all of the land into our hands. Yeshua hears the heart of this one woman and proclaims total victory over the land. It, it, this is actually what God's about. This is the narrative. With Joshua, with Yeshua, this is what goes first. It's to save, to seek and to save. That's what matters more than anything else. So Joshua's learning that God's already gone out in front of them and he's already done the work. Joshua 3. Am I good for Joshua 3? I'm good for Joshua 3. So they get one lady saved and they're now they're ready to take off. Joshua 3, they're moving to the river. This is four chapters of let's go, right? So there's a lot to let's go in the kingdom. It's not a simple topic. Verse 1, then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, and he and all the children of Israel, and they lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. Remember in chapter one, they were supposed to prepare for three days of waiting? So they're gonna they're waiting three days for these spies to get back. And so they've moved, they've gotten right there. Jericho can see that they're coming. Here after three days, they set out, and then they camped. So this is an example of hurry up and wait. Right? So they were camped a little further away from the Jericho. Now they've moved right to the edge of the Jericho and they've set up camp there and they're going to wait. Lodge there means tarried or waiting. It doesn't actually mean a lodge in northern Minnesota, but it means that they're going to tarry there and wait for three days. But that's okay. God's already told them to get ready for a three-day wait. So they're good. They got their granola bars. They got their bottled water. They're set. They're good. After three days, um, they get to sit and look at this river. <laughs> which is why it was really cool to go up to Jay Cook. They had three days to sit and look at a river that's about 100 meters wide, probably wider because of the spring rains, which we're going to see in later verses. And then they get to think about how are we going to cross that thing, right? Knowing that their parents got across the Red Sea because God did something. So it, there's no indication here that they're worried about the river because you would think there's a little expectation here. They know God works. They know God can take care of the river. So the river that should in the physical world be a very scary kind of concept for them is not a scary concept, or at least we don't get a record of it. And we do get a record of how they went off and saved a harlot, right? So this is a detailed historical perspective, and there's no, no mention of their hearts towards the river. Um, but there is this idea that there's this great gulf between them and where God wants them to be that they can't cross on their own, right? Besides this, between you and us, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here and, and you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Luke 16, 27, New Testament. Without God's spirit moving on these waters, Israel is helpless right now. They know that. But there's no despair in that thought. 
And we can think the same thing. We can have that friend that we want to get saved, but they're hostile to the message of Christ. That's nothing for God. That's a gulf, but it's not an uncrossable gulf. Children, parents, grandparents, family, come and see what the Lord has done. Come and see what fruits there is in a godly life. See what you're missing, right? And there's no despair in that because God can turn and change those hearts if God so works in their life. So there's lots of people in this situation. Sin can be overwhelming. That's a gulf that we get to look at for a few days, right? God, I'm never going to kick this habit. God, I'm never going to stop thinking this way. God, I'm always going to be bitter, or I'm always going to be jealous, or I'm always going to covet. I can never get over these things until you say, God, help me get over these things, because I can't. Get three days wait by the river, I'm thinking those prayers are starting to happen amongst the Israelites. Lord, we know you can take care of this river, but we're kind of realizing we can't do this. This Jordan River, the word Jordan in the Hebrew means descending. So it was a rough and choppy river as it's coming down out of the hills. This would be a scary thing, moving fast, quick flowing. But they're where they're supposed to be. They're doing what God was supposed to do. So there's no despair whatsoever. Verse 3, And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet, there shall be a space between you and it, it being the ark, about 2,000 cubits. You can put 10 football fields. That's how I translate space. By measure. Don't come near it, or three quarters of a mile, if you like to drive. Don't come near it that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. I think that's a really interesting verse. Wait, why can't I go close to it? How do I get better directions if I'm further away? And sometimes people call that getting perspective. That sometimes to see past the river, you have to get some perspective. You have to back up. Or a really better example of that is, you, you know when you're on the road and you're behind a semi-truck and you're trying to see if you can pass and get around the semi-truck? If you get too close to the semi-truck, this massive big thing that will eat you on the road, you really can't see very well. You have to sometimes, to see something big and immense and eternal and amazing, you have to back up a little bit to see what God's going to do. Another thought with a three-quarter mile. There's total trust here that God's going to do all the work. Because you think of this Ark of the Covenant, this cedar box lined with gold, about yay big. This is going to, with the, a nice, bright, sunny Middle Eastern day, this thing's going to bounce light off it like a star. So here's what you do for your battle plan. Don't put your spears and, and shock troops out in front. Put the most valuable thing you own as a country three quarters of a mile out in front of you and just watch what happens. This is not a battle strategy. This is a spiritual battle strategy. Does that make sense? Like, let's put all our world's wealth and treasure out where everybody can get it. <laughs> like bait, right? It's what you, you put the valuable thing in front of the mouse so that it goes into the trap. And it's kind of like what God's doing here. He's putting this beautiful piece of gold ornate box finely crafted by some of the best, you know, skills in the world known at that time. Let's just put it out in front where the, all the people in Jericho can see this thing shining out in front of us. It's very similar to what God did back in Numbers 21.9 when the snakes are biting their feet and Moses hammers out a bronze serpent, puts it up on a banner and says, if you just keep your eyes on the cross, on that banner, then you don't have to worry about the snakes anymore. And it's kind of like what they're doing here. Put your eyes on that ark out three, mile, or a quarter, three quarters of a mile in front of you. Don't put your eyes on the river. 
take your eyes off that river for a sec and just put them on God and we'll gonna and you'll see things happening there. So Moses made that bronze serpent, he put it on a pole and so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, he looked at the bronze serpent and he lived. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. All the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's a really cool image of that ark just shining in front of the people of God. So that, and, and think of the anticipation. It's like, here we go. This is happening. And the priests pick that thing up and it starts moving. Remember all the times they've moved out in the wilderness? Remember where the ark was? It was in the middle of the camp. They had people east, west, north, and south of that thing like they were guarding it. But they're not guarding it anymore. At this point, it's being wielded like a weapon. It's going out in front, not being guarded at all. Verse 5, Joshua says to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. <laughs> Good leadership, right? He's just pointing them to the Lord. Watch what's going to happen here. But Joshua doesn't know what's going to happen. This is, takes amazing faith on Joshua's part. Just wait to see what God's going to do in your life. I think that when we, in truth and in love, can say that to people, you take the Lord into your life and start following his law. Watch what God will do in your life. Open your eyes and you're going to see wonders every day you walk with the king. Like wonders like you breathe in and you breathe out and your heart keeps beating. You can actually give God credit for that when you open your eyes or you can just take it for granted. That water seems to get sucked up into the air and then miraculously comes down on a seasonal basis in a way that doesn't kill us billions of gallons of water get sucked up and lowered onto this earth and nobody really dies from it. It's kind of a miracle that you can just absorb or go for a walk in the park and look at how beautiful it is and see that God has made us a beautiful world. You know, we don't live on Mars. We live on earth. This is amazing. And Joshua spoke to the priests saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Sanctify there in verse 5 is kadosh. It means to prepare or consecrate. It's a word that got used in Leviticus a lot. This is how you worship. It is to set yourself apart spiritually. So Joshua doesn't prep his warriors. He, pre he preps his saints. And they don't know about the river. They only know that God can take care of that river if they want to. And this is seemingly for an actual battle. They are marching on Jericho right now. And he says, go and sanctify yourself. Get holy. Get that sin out of your life. Move forward. There's no mention of siege towers. There is no mention of a battering ram. They have not prepared for this battle. And I can't get over that because I love those medieval battle movies. And the preparation for war is the coolest scene. And I'm missing that scene unless I open my eyes. No, the scene is they're sanctifying themselves. They're washing their hands. They're going down to the tabernacle. They're taking care of the business they need to take care of for God to do wonders. God's going to be involved in everything that's about to happen. That's a central biblical theme that gets established. He is what we're waiting for. We don't know what God will do. He's just going to do it. Uh, Yeshua asked the priests to step up and get ready. He doesn't go to the whole nation. He doesn't go to 10-year-olds. Remember the rules for war prep is that those who just got married can go home and be with their wives. Those who haven't established their trade or their work can go home and do that. So he's not asking those. He's not asking all of Israelites. He's asking these priests to get themselves ready to go. So they're going to step up in front of the people, and that means they just stepped in front of the Reubenites and the Gadites, which had promised to go in front. Now they don't even have to go in front. 
the priests are going to go in front. So they're the primary war thing is a bunch of people carrying the ark, probably singing Moses' songs. And then Joshua spoke. He's heard God's command. And then the next thing he does is takes and tells the people what God just said. The Ark of the Covenant is a new name. We've seen it referred to as the Ark of the Testimony. We've seen it referred to as the Ark of God. But here we see it referred to as the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if you noticed that. It emphasizes God's faithfulness. Like this is the Ark that represents the deal we made with God. So there's this promise that's getting reminded to the people when they use the word covenant there. This is the Ark of our promise or our deal we made with God. So they're about to do physical work, but they're getting themselves spiritually ready. They took it up. There's no questioning here. There's no arguing. You don't see a revolt like Moses had. They just do what they're told. And think of what they're doing. They're walking the most precious thing they have towards a raging sea and a nation of people ready to fight them. But they just do it. They just obey. So for each step that gets carefully recorded here, God talks to Joshua. Joshua talks to the people. And then the third step is they do it. And so we're going to see that again and again. Verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, he talks to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying when you've come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So the, Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. So part here's... There's three parts to this next narrative. The first part is right here. God speaks to Joseph, Joshua. He talks to the people. They go to the river. The second part's going to start in Joshua 4.1. And if you look at the first verse of chapter 4, they're going to have this thing with the stones where God talks to Joshua. Joshua tells the people, and they do what they're told. And then the third part's going to be in Joshua 4, verse 15. Um, and God's going to talk to Joshua, and then Joshua's going to tell the people, and then they're going to do something. So there's three steps that they're going to take. Each step, God telling them what to do as they go. Verse 7, that he's going to exalt Joshua. This is going to be the first miracle that's being done with Joshua, but it's not the last. I like that he says, I'll begin to. So what's about to happen is just the beginning, Joshua. We're just getting started. So God is going to show that he's with Yeshua. It's very similar to another event that happens at this exact spot. Okay, it's not the exact spot. It's about 100 yards away where a crazy man goes out into the wilderness and starts proclaiming the kingdom of God is near. He goes to this spot to do it. Why? Because this is where the Israelites came into the land, and it's a symbolic stop, spot for the Jews forever. So about 100 meters from this spot, because that's where they traditionally believe John the Baptist was teaching, this carpenter comes down, and John sees that this is the Messiah and he calls him down and he says, surely I'm, I shouldn't even be tying, you know, I, I, I'm not worthy enough to take care of your shoes, your sandal, right? And, and, and Jesus says, no, you're going to do this and you're going to baptize me. Then Jesus came from Galilee. This is Ma Matthew 3, chapter, verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized him. They make note of it. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came immediately up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Sounds a little like what God's saying to Joshua right now, doesn't it? I will be with you, verse 7. I'm going to show you that I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to do it right here at this spot, huge spot. This is place number two that I really want to see in Israel if I go to Israel. I want to go to this river and be there. 
it's kind of a big church right now, but they're burying things. It's sad. God confirms and encourages this at each step for both Yeshua's. It happens kind of the same way. And the odd part is it happens in the same spot, just in case we didn't get the metaphor or get the connection or what God's trying to show us. You shall stand in the river. It's a specific command. Jesus goes to the river and is dunked under the water, and then he stands and comes up out of the water, and God reveals himself. So we have no idea what's going to happen. I wonder if Jesus in his humanity went down there thinking, are you going to part the Jordan again? Like, is this what's going to happen? I don't know if Jesus thought that way or not. But he didn't know. And the last time somebody stood in the river when they were commanded to, this river parts, right? Elisha and Elijah have a moment with the Jordan, but we'll get there when we get to their part too. So this is a really significant spot. Don't try to swim across the river. Don't try to beat against the goads. Don't try to make a bridge. Just go stand in the river is their command. You're supposed to hurry up and go stand there, right? That's all they're told to do. So when the Israelites, if they were to add anything to this effort, they would ruin the image. And this is one of those things. We were just talking in the car about this. Sometimes I think in the church, we try to do things and in our will, we're actually ruining what God's trying to do in our life when we come in trying to force our way on stuff. I want to do this. I want to do this. We should have a bingo night, right? But if it's just me pushing bingo night because I love bingo, I might actually be ruining what God's trying to do amongst that body of believers, right? So just a thought about that, you know? And I keep bugging Grant about, you should do a Minecraft build, and Grant doesn't have a heart for it. And I got to say, okay, just shut it down because I think it would be cool. doesn't mean it would really be cool. Maybe I'm ruining what God would try to do in Grant's life. Right? And we do that all the time to each other. We try to tell each other what we should be doing in the kingdom. And in doing that, we're not allowing God to speak to individuals so that they can do what God's telling them to do in the kingdom. And I got all out of that about you should stand in the river. So I know that was a thing, but then I prayed about it and I thought, okay, that's quite a tangent, Lord. But I think that that's here. God doesn't command them to cross the river. He commands them to get to where he's telling them to go and to stand there and wait. So when we find things like a good Bible study or a good church or a nice ministry we're helping with, just go there and do what's there to be done and wait for the Lord to open up new opportunities and new things. Just be embraced in what God's about to do and expectant. And I don't think it's that far of a tangent. When I prayed about it, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to talk about that. Hear the words. The first step in our walk is to hear the words, verse 9. So come here, hear the words of the Lord your God. Part of what we do when we're standing is we read the word of God. It's why we're all here tonight, and I love that. And because we're all here tonight, we know we have a united heart about the idea that we're going to hear the word of God. We're going to get through this whole book as much as Sean takes his time with it. But we're going to get through it. So you get ready, you get there, you stand in the water, and you dedicate yourself to the words of God. And that's more important than anything that you can do. God can work through you because he can work through a donkey, right? He can, he can worship and glorify himself because he, he can use rocks to do that. But he chooses to use you because when we get our heart aligned with God, we go to where he's telling us to go and we hear the words of God, he can work in our life and, and get ready. He's going to do wonders. Verse 10. And Joshua said, Yeshua says, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. God's going to fight all their battles and there's none of that stuff they need to worry about. Joshua connects 
the coming event with what's going to happen after the promises to come. God does little stuff in our life, like parting the Jordan River, in order to show us that he's going to do things later in our life too. If you've seen one action of God in your life, that should give you hope that he's always acting in your life. He's going to conquer all the verse tens, right? He'll get the Barbasites, those are little dolls. <laughs> the cellulites, the big people. He'll take care of all of them. He's going to drive them out. Again, we see this word. I know this is a theme I keep coming back, but the word drive out is the word that you use when a shepherd drives their sheep. It's when they move something. This isn't wanton destruction of humanity. This is a movement of people that God's using. Like a loving shepherd, he's driving these people out and he's moving them along. So where he saves Rahab, the rest of Jericho is in defiance to God and he's going to judge them. And so that's a tough thing for us to embrace sometimes. And one of the critiques of Joshua is these are, this is wanton destruction in Joshua. This is a God that just wipes people out. But when you actually read Joshua, that's not what's going on here. The word is to drive out, to be guided away because he's going to move the Israelites in and he's going to guide away these other nations. doesn't say he's going to just destroy them wantonly. And if you remember from Deuteronomy, Leviticus and Numbers, he's made specific policies for any stranger to come into the nation of Israel and be part of the worship of God. So Rahab's going to be embraced through those laws and those policies. She's just going to be part of Israel and she's going to join them. Verse 11, behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. They've been called by this covenant. Here, the word Lord is not in all capitals. You should notice that. It's the lowercase letters of Lord, which means it's Adonai. Adonai means master or governor. So he is the master or the Lord of all the earth. He's bigger than any of the kings, including the king of Jericho, which was just mentioned in the last chapter. He is the king of all of the earth. He is the master and the governor. So here goes the ark. It's out in front. Verse 12. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, there we have both Jehovah and Adonai, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off and the waters that come down from upstream, and, and they stand, shall stand as a heap. It's very specific language there. Twelve men, we have no explanation at this point while they're here. we got to wait for chapter 4 to find out why twelve men were picked out. But here's the thought we can have right now. God is preparing the next step while we're in this step. And I think that's an interesting thought, that God does this thing with the twelve men in verse 12, but it has no explanation why. They just do it out of faith because God's setting up the next scene or the next scenario while they're still in this scene. And I think that shows us the nature of God too. He's always planning one, two steps ahead in our lives. And we can sometimes get too close to the semi-truck and we can't really see how to move forward, but God's always doing that for us. God sees it from above you know, the satellite view and he knows exactly how ridiculous we look hanging out behind the semi. He's saying like, take the perspective here. I've got this handled. And they do, they faithfully do it. And then the other kind of image, is, which is one of my favorite images in the Bible, and I'll keep coming back to this one, step in the water. I love that idea. The water that's raging, that's in the spring floods, that's out of control, step in and get in there and get your feet wet. And this is, I think, where we get the phrase, I'm going to get my feet wet. I'm just going to step in and see what God does with that. And as soon as I do that, I can move forward in life. And as a believer, I can get out of the thorns. 
And as a believer, I can get out of the wilderness. I can start doing what God has for me because I just step in the water no matter how scary it looks. It's like, okay, God, here I am. What are you going to do next? First Chronicles 12, 15, the men of Gad, the mighty men, one of the things that's listed that makes them mighty men is that they cross the Jordan River without the help of God, right? So when they step in the water, they're doing things that are so far beyond. This is what superhumans do. This is like what Olympians do. Olympians can swim the, the English Channel or they can cross the Jordan River in the high springs. I mean, so when you look at 1 Chronicles 12, 15, that's how they're defined as being awesome athletes. So here's, here's a bunch of priests carrying an ark, having to step in that water, and they're not necessarily mighty men. They're just spiritual gods and guys, and they love the Lord. And they're going to watch what God does for them. If you don't think you can do it, take a step in and just see what God can do. Because if you think you can do it and then you do it, there's no glory for God whatsoever. But if you spend three days looking at that problem and then you step in anyways, knowing God will take care of it, now God gets all the glory. Because you know in your heart, in a very private way, you know that you had no plan. You had no idea how God was going to do it. You had no thought to what was going to happen next other than God told you to do it. So you do it and you watch what happens. God will give you three answers. He'll give you yes, he'll give you no, or he'll say, stand there another three days. And God does those answers to work on our hearts, not because he needs us to win his battles, but because he wants our hearts to be in the right place. Verse 14, so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross the Jordan, again, no argument, nothing like that, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water. I like that. They're not standing in it. These are priests that are like wondering if they should do it or not dipping in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. Don't miss that point. They're trying to tell us how big this river is right now. And anybody they thought would be reading the book of Joshua, they thought would be familiar with the Jordan river and that they would know like that it's the time of harvest. It's springtime. And that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that's beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. <laughs> so picture this. The priests walk down to the thing. Everybody's in three-quarters of a mile behind them, and they kind of like stand there and then dip their feet in the water. You wonder at some level like if the priests messed with the Israelites. Like they just kind of stopped there and said like, you know, or if they paused at all, or if they just kind of strode in and got ankle deep in this rushing water coming over their feet. And they could feel like the sand starting to move under their feet just a little bit. You know, when you walk in a stream, it only takes like a foot of water for you to feel like it might just sweep you out, especially if it's slippery, right? So they're walking on this kind of clay, sandy stuff being rushed by water. How long did God make them wait standing there? <laughs> like, how awkward would that be? You just kind of walk in the water and you stand there. But there's no, there's nothing here that says they had to wait a long time. So the implication is that the water stopped immediately. But I like to think, I like to imagine these moments as being very uncomfortable for the priests. What if Joshua was wrong? Like this seems really stupid. Why are we doing this? What does this look like? Have any of you had those thoughts in life? Wait a second. What am I doing right now? How did I get here? Verse 16 has very specific notes on how and where all of this happened. We should know. We're not reading a metaphorical text here. 
We're not reading a poetic text. We've read songs. The Jewish people knew how to write songs. This is not a song. This is historical narrative with very specific points that we should kind of pull out one by one. They spend 430 years of, in Egypt. 30 of those years are a peaceful period under Joshua. They have the Red Sea where they cross on the dry ground. And here they're going to cross on dry ground again. So they have this moment of expectation. They know their history. They know where they came from and they know what God's capable of. And we're about to see a very underappreciated miracle. I hadn't even heard of this miracle until I actually read the Bible for myself because it doesn't come up in the Sunday school curriculum. Right? And pastors don't always go and talk about this miracle. It's as amazing as the Red Sea. In fact, in some ways, it's even more amazing because you're talking about flowing, rushing water. You're not talking about a lake there. The Red Sea just kind of sits there. There's not like this movement of water. So the time of harvest is specific. I've already pointed that out. It rose in a heap very far away at Adam. So Adam's about 18 miles north of Jericho. Uh, it's a small, insignificant town. We know that because they point out that it's beside Zaratan because they don't expect the reader to know where Adam is. I don't know them from Adam, right? So here we have Zaratan as the bigger city, which we've found archaeologically. And then we have Adam, which is this obscure little city. Uh, in Kings, it gets mentioned. Uh, and we don't quite know, like, why, it, you know, it, it, they point out this spot other than that it's actually the spot where something happened. So there's two ways to read this, that the water flowed up and backed up to Adam, and that's plausible, because as you come out of the mountains, Adam's kind of in a valley between two very rocky mountainous areas, and the water of the Jordan River narrows there into kind of a rushing kind of thing, and it floods through into this Jericho area, which is a big open plain. So if the water stopped where they're crossing, it would make a big wall of water, and there'd be little fish poking out, wondering why they can't get downstream, right? Total like physical miracle of God. That's one reading of this is that it piled up at Jericho and it, and it backed up all the way to Adam. Do you see that? Another way to read this is that it was a heap at Adam. So something happened at the city of Adam that made it that for 18 miles, there's this huge stretch of land that the water stopped in, right? Which is also plausible and accurate because that narrow gorge at Adam actually has, there's times when that water eats away the, the soil or the rock and that it caves in. And we know this because it's actually happened in human, in recorded history. And we've seen it happen a couple times. So an Arabian historian notes that in 1265 AD, the Jordan close to the city of Adam actually piled up and used very similar words. And then once, as soon as 1927, it happened again. So God's given us these reminders throughout history of that this can happen in a very naturalistic way. So Joshua actually writes that the water was at Adam, very far away at Adam, it piles up in a heap. So does water pile in a heap? It doesn't. Water would pile up in a pool or in a lake or in a waterfall or something like that, but he says it piled up in a heap, meaning that this thing that we've seen two other times happen in history probably happened right at this moment, at this precise second when the priests stand in there, is that there's a massive cave-in at the city of Adam, and it creates a reservoir upriver from there, which is totally naturalistic and plausible, but I want to be careful about that. I like the naturalistic stuff because I think God works quietly sometimes, but don't underestimate that this is still an absolute miracle 
on the timing of it alone. So if it only happens like 1265 AD to 1927, you're talking about 700 years. If this only really happens where the rock breaks down and caves in about every 700 years, the fact that it happens on this day at this time after God said to wait three days, wait three days, I'm about to do something. And right at the moment they set their feet in the water, the water dries up. So there had to be water there for them to step in it. So the timing alone is a, the Bible is claiming an absolute total miracle and it gives all the credit for that miracle to God even if Sean's saying there's naturalistic ways where this could have happened, right? Because I just think those are kind of interesting. So don't let the naturalistic explanation take away from the fact that it is perfectly plausible that God stacked the, woman, the water up right there, and that is a, a, a perfectly viable read of this passage. So I'm not trying to take away from what God did there. I'm trying to give God the credit for doing something pretty amazing either way. The timing alone is the miracle. So note that Jericho would be seeing all of this happen. Like they're watching on their walls because they're terrified. They're fixated on the believers and they're watching everything the believers do. And then the believers step in this water, which should be their best natural pre barrier against invasion. And the water dries up. And the Jericho people, you think their hearts were melted before. This had to destroy them. I'd be like, okay, hon, let's go. Steph, pack up the stuff. We're out of here. Yeah, I don't know what you, I was up on the wall, saw the water dried up. I think I'm leaving my post, I'm grabbing my family, and I'm heading out the back door. When I see this happening, forget about it. We're gone. And the people that are left in Jericho decide not to do that, right? What are they clinging on to so desperately that they still want to fight? Crazy. So water heaps, piles up in a heap at Adam, verse 17. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people crossed the completely over the Jordan. You catch that Joshua wants us to see that they crossed on dry ground, repeats himself saying it. We don't see a lot of repeating of ourselves in the Bible unless they're trying to make an emphasis. The miracle here isn't that it piled in a heap. It is also that they crossed on dry ground. So no matter what happened upriver, the fact that that mud is not mud anymore, it's dry, like God put a super blow dryer on this thing or something because they crossed on dry ground and they had their feet in the water when they stepped in it. So that dry ground was instantaneous. So God's claiming a miracle. It's going to get even, you know, we're going to get a few chapters down. God's going to stop time for the Israelites, right? So this claim of supernatural miracles is a persistent thing in the Bible, and we're not going to get away from it. But crossing on dry ground seems to be the thing that Joshua wants to make the largest note of, is that not only did the Jordan just stop, but the ground dried up right in front of us. So the Hebrews are going to cross over. A two million of them are going to move across this land, which is why I like the piling up at Adam image, because that gives them about 20 miles of space on this plane where they can kind of all move together. Because otherwise, if they go in a single file line, like that's going to take a long time for two million people to get across the river. But they all get across the river, you know, in a very fairly short amount of time. Uh, the word Hebrew actually means to cross, to cross over. I don't know if I ever pointed that out before, but it's a picture of deliverance. The Hebrew people, the Israelites, they are Hebrews. They cross over. This is what they do. Crossed over the, Isra the Red Sea. Now they're crossing over the Jordan. They cross the wilderness. They cross everything. They just cross, cross, cross. Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew. It's like we're supposed to get an image of a cross somewhere in that package, right? 
So they cross over the Jordan. God shows how he's caring for all the people. It says all the people in verse 17. It's a big deal that all Israel and all the people are able to cross. It's a big deal to God that the entire flock comes along, not just Rahab, but he's taking care of all 99 in addition to taking care of Rahab. The whole flock is taken care of. And not the whole flock is in the same position. Like the body moves forward, but the priests are carrying the ark. And the Reubenites and Gadites are in the lead militarily. And there's women and children and other people that aren't necessarily in those roles. And God takes care of every single one of them because they all matter to God. Really cool. And in the middle of all of it is the Ark of the Covenant, this covenant that he's made with them. So this is the same spot that Jesus gets baptized. I just love that image. Think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up the children of Abraham. It is likely when he's talking about those stones, he's talking about the stones we're going to see in chapter 4. It's likely those markers are still there, and he's actually pointing at this example of God's caring for all the people when he says that and when he, when he makes that point. It is likely this is the same spot where the waters parted and Elijah went up to heaven. So this is a huge kind of moment in the Bible, and we establish this spot in the Jordan as an extremely important spot for the biblical narratives where God's going to tie together three different stories. And this is the first of those stories. They enter into God's plan. It has everything to do with God's word. God tells Joshua, they do it. It's God's word. God's word is in the Ark of the Covenant. It's out in front. It's there while they cross over. God's word's at the middle of the whole story. They listen to Yeshua. They hold up the word. They walk this way, and they wait upon God's work. And we see that basic formula here, as we've seen it before, as we're going to see it again. It's a consistent thing that I don't know how we lose this as a people. But God tells us to listen to Jesus, hold up his word, walk the way he tells us to walk, and wait for him to do wonders in our life. It's really simple. I think the hard part is number four. We don't like to wait. We like to see things happen right now when God just says, wait on me and expect what I'm going to do. When it seems lost and forlorn, when you don't know what's coming next in your life, wait on the Lord. Listen to his word, hold up his word, walk the way he tells you to walk, and wait for him. And God will show up. It's a promise that's even hard for me to make. And I've seen it happen in my own life so much, but I don't know if he's going to do it in your life. I know God loves me. I don't know how much he loves you people, right? <laughs> but it's something that as the Bible tells me, I'm also supposed to tell people about that like the Samaritan woman at the well. What made her so wonderful to God was that she went with the faith to tell other people that God's going to do something in their life too. So as much as I don't know, I'm supposed to be able to say that to you. If you just listen to Jesus, hold up the word of God as holy, study it like we're doing tonight, walk the way he tells you to walk, he's going to do wonders in your life. It's amazing. And it's not prosperity gospel, but it's this simple spiritual thing because prosperity is not physical, it's spiritual, Right? And it's that God will do things in your heart that only you know about. And suddenly you'll be like that. You'll be like, I know God works in my life, but I don't know about you losers, right? I love that scene in Braveheart where the guy's like looking at Mel Gibson and he's like, I think God's telling me that it's this or that. And then Mel Gibson says, well, are we going to get through this battle? And he says, well, I know I'm going to get through this battle, but I don't know about you, you know? And I think that Christians sometimes, that's the beautiful, very personal part about Yeshua is that we know God loves us and God loves everyone, and he takes care of all the people, but we know he loves us. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to make you all feel like God doesn't love you. That's not my point. My point is that God's a personal God, and he works in our life 
all the people is what it says there in the last verse. God is concerned with all the people because it's not a victory if he loses somebody. It's just not. That person you know that's teetering or asking questions about God, it's not a victory if he loses that person. Anyone who wants to come to God and knocks on that door, God promises that they'll open it. The difference is in the heart. They have to have a heart that seeks God. And when that heart emerges, we're just supposed to point the way. Go that way and be there. So I love the fact that this image we have at the end of chapter 3 is this unity of the body of Christ moving forward together, acting together, listening to what Jesus says or Jehovah's, Yeshua says. No matter what the role is, they're all part of that game plan. So God works both independently and he works corporately. And I think that's so amazing. And I think what God's done in people's lives that we know through this fellowship even and the work that he does in the hearts of people and how God just loves people, but we get to see that corporately. And that's a blessing to us. It's God saying, I love you and I care about you. And thanks for taking the time to study my word and to know what I want to know what I have to say in your life. And God honors that and blesses that. So we put the ark before us. We follow what the Lord tells us to do. We do our best to walk that way. And then we wait upon the Lord to do things. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Yeshua, King, Savior, and leader of our life, Lord, we are so honored that we have your word, that we can put it out in front. It doesn't matter what we have to say, Lord. It just matters what you have to say. It doesn't matter who we are. It matters who you are. Um, Lord, it, it, it doesn't matter that we don't know the way and we don't understand where to go or what step to take next. Help us to just be okay with that to be blessed in the arms of Christ, to be held in your holy, to be the apple of your eye, Lord, to just be someone you love and to be blessed by that. Help us to abide in Christ uh, and to trust in Christ and that he says that where two or three are gathered in my name, you'll be there too. Lord, help us to know that. Um, help us, Lord, to trust in the wonders that you will do in our life. We appreciate all the setup, the three days of waiting, the standing in the water, the 40 years in the wilderness. Lord, all of that led us to where we're at right now. And we thank you for that blessing in our life, that you care enough about us to cultivate our hearts and prepare us for what you're about to do. Lord, open our eyes so we can see it, so we have eyes to see and ears to hear what you will do in our lives. So teach us those things. Lord, help us to minister one to another as we finish the teaching tonight. Help that to just be a sweet fellowship time, Lord, where we can pray for one another, we can bless one another, and we can abide with one another. Lord, thank you for the refresh, refreshing time that you've given us each week together. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you that we can read it and know what it says, that you can confirm it, Lord. We thank you for Rahab, for cultivating her heart and being an example of faith, the first great convert to the, to the Israelites that you name by name. Lord, we love and we, we worship you and we praise you for being the kind of God that would go out of your way to save Rahab before you continue even with the, the plan of the mighty Israelite nation moving into the promised land. Uh, before fulfilling promises to Abraham, you would rather seek out the lost sheep and find her and give her a path to salvation. Man, God, you're amazing. Thank you for that because you did it for me. And each person in this room, Lord, you went out of your way to cultivate our hearts, to save us, to draw us close to you. Thank you for that gift and that blessing. May we always put our eyes on you. Uh, we look at each other, Lord, we're going to get disappointed, but may we keep our eyes on you 
keep our eyes fixed on you and off the river. And Lord, we live in such a river right now. And it is, the current is strong and it is raging and it's overflowing its banks. So Lord, help us to just keep our eyes on you, fixed on you and find peace and, and, and satisfaction in that. In Jesus' name we pray. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.